digital media is a drug. It powerfully triggers our brain's reward pathway. It releases dopamine and that we have to treat it as such. I don't think we've yet arrived at the recognition that there are things about screens and the internet that kids should really not be exposed to. We just really need to own the fact that for some of our children, this is going to turn out to be a terribly dangerous and pernicious kind of activity. Hello to all the amazing Heart to Healing listeners. I can't believe we've already come to the end of season three. I've absolutely loved all of your wonderful comments about the episodes. And just to know that it's been a real comfort for some of you going through your own struggles has felt incredibly rewarding. I feel like we've already got such a brilliant and inspiring community, and I really can't wait for that to expand every season. So summer has begun, and I know it's usually a time to rest, reset, and enjoy yourselves. But I'd love to share a few more bonus episodes with you that I've recorded, which are too good to wait until the next season. So welcome to the summer specials. On today's summer special, I am joined by Dr. Anna Lempke a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University and the best-selling author of Drug Dealer MD, and most recently, Dopamine Nation. In Dopamine Nation, Dr. Anna Lemke explores the exciting new scientific discoveries that explain why the relentless pursuit of pleasure leads to pain. Most importantly, she tells readers how to find the delicate balance between the two. Today, we speak about how we're living in a time with unprecedented access to high dopamine stimuli, such as drugs, food, news and social media. Dr. Lemke explains that we've all become vulnerable to overconsumption and she tells us how we can stop overindulging and ultimately transform our own lives. Would you start, Anna, by telling us what the neurotransmitter dopamine is, how it works and why it's so important? So dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brains. It is a, as you say, a neurotransmitter And neurotransmitters are the molecules that allow for fine-tuning of the electrical circuits that make us who we are. So our brain is composed of many different types of cells, but one of the main cells is the neuron. Neurons are long and spindly cells that conduct these electrical signals, but the neurons don't touch end-to-end. There's a space between them. That space is called the synapse. And that synapse is bridged by chemicals called neurotransmitters, which are the chemicals that allow for, again, fine-tuning of these electrical circuits. Dopamine is essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in those experiences, but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing substances and behaviors. Dopamine is also central to movement, uh, and it's probably no coincidence that the same neurotransmitter that's important for movement is also important for pleasure and reward because most organisms have to move toward the object of their desire. And that's been true for humans until very recently. And it's also associated with pain. Would you mind speaking a bit about that? One thing that's important to understand in order to understand how dopamine is involved in pain is to recognize that pain and pleasure are processed in the same part of the brain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine that in your brain, there's a beam on a central fulcrum, something like a seesaw uh, in a kid's playground, 
And when you are at rest or at your baseline, then that beam is level with the ground. And in a very simplified way, that beam represents how we process pleasure and pain. And there are certain rules governing this balance. And the first and most important one is that the balance wants to remain level, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And that means that with any deviation from the neutral position, our brains are going to work very hard to restore a level balance. And they do that first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So for example, if I read a romance novel, which is, you know, one of my drugs of choice that releases a little bit of dopamine in my brain's reward pathway, my balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than my brain adapts to increase dopamine by downregulating dopamine transmission, production, involuting my postsynaptic dopamine receptors um, so that I decrease dopamine transmission, but not just to baseline, actually below baseline into this dopamine deficit state. And you might imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again but they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the hangover, that moment of wanting to read one more chapter in my romance novel or watch one more TikTok video or eat one more peanut. Um, And that we can experience that state of craving even while we're still engaged in consuming the reward in the first place. So when we're in that state of physiologic craving or that pleasure, pain, balance, tilted to the side of pain, and we have access to more of whatever it is that gives us pleasure, very, very difficult to resist the urge to consume that substance or engage in that behavior because the drive for homeostasis or the level of balance is overwhelming. It's one of the most fundamental drives guiding all living organisms, which makes the modern environment, a very challenging place. Um, Because when we then repeatedly consume our drug of choice, whether it's a substance or behavior, we start to accumulate more and more gremlins on the pain side of the balance as they're trying to compete with all that dopamine to uh, kind of get back to the level position. And ultimately, we can kind of get stuck uh, with the balance tilted to the side of pain. We get into a chronic dopamine deficit state Uh, Our brains are reeling in an attempt to compensate for all of the dopamine spikes that we're getting from the substance or behavior that we're consuming. And once we're in that place, we're essentially entering into the addicted brain where we need more of our drug and more potent forms, not to get high, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're walking around with the balance tilted to the side of pain experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. So for addicts, do you think you have a a predisposition towards being able to tolerate this dopamine deficit, say more than most? I mean, what, what leads to someone craving that ultimate dopamine hit and then being able to withstand the dopamine deficit for a while and so the seesaw is constantly swinging until eventually as you say it reaches this point where it can no longer swing into the positive side and the addict can no longer experience pleasure and they're in a sort of perpetual dopamine deficit state and experiencing pain. Well when we think about the risk factors of addiction there are many. I like to group them largely into three separate categories which I call 
nature, nurture, and neighborhood. So when we think about nature, what we're talking about is inborn or genetic vulnerability to the problem of addiction. And it's very clear that some people come into the world more vulnerable to addiction than others. Family studies and adoption studies show that if you have a biological parent or grandparent with an alcohol addiction, you are more likely than the general population to yourself develop an alcohol addiction, even if you are raised outside of that alcoholic home. So there's clearly something innate and genetic. And we see that in clinical work as well. Addiction broadly defined as the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. And there are clearly individuals who are very vulnerable to this problem and can get addicted to just about anything. Also on the nature side is the fact that co-occurring psychiatric disorders increase the risk of developing an addiction. And many co-occurring psychiatric disorders are also biologically innate, not all, obviously not all aspects of it. These are complex biopsychosocial diseases. But if you come into the world, for example, with the genetic predisposition for uh, a mood disorder or a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia or an anxiety disorder, that also increases your vulnerability to becoming addicted uh, later in life. So you've got those sort of innate characteristics that are complex polygenic phenomena. We're not going to find one addiction gene. That's never going to happen. And it's always going to be an interplay between what you bring into the world and the environment that you're raised in, which brings us to the next category of risk, which is nurture. So we know that there are certain experiences that can, people have, you know, especially early in life, that either protect them from developing addiction or make them more vulnerable. Protective factors tend to be having a stable and nurturing family structure with parents who are very involved in, in a child's life. Uh, know where the kid is, know what's in their backpack, who they're hanging out with, and also parents who model healthy coping strategies. And if they do consume drugs of all variety, they do so in moderation. Whereas kids who are growing up in environments that where they're experiencing emotional, physical, sexual abuse, where there's a dysfunctional attachment with caregivers, where parents are consuming drugs of all ilk, uh, in a maladaptive or addictive way. Not surprisingly, these kids are at increased risk for developing addiction later in life. Finally, the third bucket, which is the one I think gets ignored, but which is possibly the most important a risk factor today is simple access. So when we think about neighborhood, we're thinking about the environment. And we know uh, from many different studies that if you grow up in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you're more likely to try them and more likely to get addicted to them. And that exposing your brain over time to substances and behaviors that release a lot of dopamine in the brain all at once will change your brain such that even somebody without the first two categories of risk, someone who's coming into the world without much innate vulnerability for addiction, somebody who's had a, a nurturing, healthy uh, childhood with no significant trauma, can still get addicted simply by exposing their brains repeatedly over time to addictive substances and behaviors. And, and that's really what my message is about, that we are now living in a time where we're all on some level constantly being exposed 
to highly reinforcing substances and behaviors, making us all more vulnerable to the problem of addiction. So this is no longer the problem of 10 to 15% of the population who comes into the world with a predisposition for addiction. We're now all walking around with minor to major compulsions. I'm curious, as someone who I believe after reading your book is somewhat a dopamine addict, I describe myself. <laughs> I, I mean, aren't we all, though, dopamine addicts if exposed, as you say, to the right environment and, and have the access to getting th- those consistent dopamine hits over time? Surely we are all predisposed to be wanting more and more dopamine. It's not really a case of necessarily neural wiring and a maladaptive neurotransmitting pattern, I mean, if, if that's how you would put it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I think that you're you're capturing it well. So first of all, it's not dopamine is the chemical we make in our brain, right? It's a signal. And it's a very important signal. We need it for survival. So for example, there's a very famous experiment in where in which rats were bioengineered to not have dopamine receptors in the pleasure reward pathway. And what the scientists found is if you put food in the rat's mouth, it would eat the food and seem to get some modicum of pleasure. But if you put the food even a body length away, the rat would starve to death. The implication being that we need dopamine in order to be motivated to do the work to go and get things that we need to survive. So dopamine is fundamental for survival. It's a fundamental part of the human experience. We wouldn't want to be without it. But this ancient wiring of how we process pleasure and pain was adapted for a world of scarcity in which in order to get our rewards, we would have to work very, very hard, walk tens of kilometers every day in order to find a little bit of food, a little bit of water, some kind of shelter, other people. And the problem today is that not only do we have our basic survival needs met, but almost every aspect of human experience has become drugified in some way. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's been made more reinforcing, so releases a lot more dopamine. Even if you take something as fundamental as food, food addiction is highly prevalent because food has more salt, more fat, more sugar. Food is processed, which means that it's condensed calories within a smaller amount per unit that we have to eat all of which triggers this appetitive cycle of intense dopamine release followed by dopamine deficit, which sets up the craving to want to make us eat more of it, right? Which is in a way how we're wired anyway. But, you know, then we have a whole smorgasbord of more. And this is the, this is the fundamental problem, whether we're talking about food or, uh, you know, human connection, or games, or shopping, or sex. I mean, you name it, you know, every aspect of our lives now has been made more reinforcing, more plentiful, more accessible, more potent, more novel, uh, all of which puts us at risk for this sort of neurotic, maladaptive, addictive cycle, even if we have come into the world without much innate vulnerability to that problem. I'm intrigued by exercise because for some people, exercise is something that they need motivating for and then get a dopamine release. Other people can be very addicted to exercise, which I don't think is something that's really spoken about enough and is something that I've definitely suffered with. And it's it's interesting because 
it takes so much exercise once you get to a certain point, like a drug addict, to get that same level of hit. Right. Um, but it almost becomes that like you're on the seesaw side of punishment before you can get any semblance of reward. And that's something that I'd love you to speak about a bit more and, um, yeah, just explain to the listeners. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I think it's, it is important to acknowledge that depending upon each of our individual wiring, we're going to be drawn to different types of reinforcers. So what, what may be, you know, my drug of choice, chocolate and romance novels, it may not be your drug of choice or, or vice versa. And generally, we recommend things like exercise, which many and increasingly more humans on the planet are not doing, because it is a way to get dopamine indirectly, which tends to be more resistant to this problem of addiction, although not entirely immune to it. If you go back to this idea of the seesaw, um, you know, remember when we press on the pleasure side, the gremlins hop on the pain side. Too much pleasure leads to us getting stuck with the balance tilted to the side of pain in that chronic dopamine deficit state. If we intentionally press on the pain side uh, with exercise, ice cold water immersion, or other forms of difficult, uh, mentally and physically difficult challenges, then those gremlins will in fact hop over on the pleasure side to try to restore homeostasis. Um, and we get our, our dopamine then indirectly and theoretically ultimately reset our pleasure pain balance to the side of pleasure. However, if you press too hard, too much, too often, and too fast on the pain side of the balance, for example, by over-exercising uh, beyond what your body was really uh, meant to do or can tolerate, uh, you equally get stuck on the pain side. Um, you don't end up getting this kind of reset to the side of pleasure. In other words, too much exercise ends up working just like an intoxicant or a drug where uh, we kind of deplete our neurotransmitter system. Um, and then we don't have anything in reserve to be able to repeat the joy of that experience. And then it begins to function just like an intoxicant where we need more intense exercise in a larger quantity over time to feel the same dopamine rush. And if we stop exercising, we go into withdrawal and we experience physical and psychological withdrawal, which can be extremely painful. It's really interesting because I think societally something which is condoned and actively encouraged and things as you allude to in, in your book and after hearing you speak work things and cold water exposure, that saying everything in moderation is so apt because you sort of, you know, some, it's the saying that's inherited through gen, through the generations and you listen to it as a child and you think, oh God, you're so boring. But in fact, it really is. <laughs> oh yeah. These messages have been around forever. We were always repackaging them for, you know, the modern era. And I, I will say, um, you know, about exercise, just like everything else in our lives, we've drugified exercise, right? We, we've made it more potent, for example, by combining exercise with social media and social status through things like leaderboards or, uh, you know, Strava rankings, the way we quantify exercise now down to the minutest you know, millisecond, measuring our heartbeats, counting ourselves, comparing how our measurements stack up against other people's measurements, not even in our neighborhood, but let's say, you know, uh, across the country, right? We can see all that instantly. Um, the machines that we use to exercise, um, 
you know, lead to this kind of repetitive motion, which is probably not what we were intended to do, right? We're intended to move both forward and back and laterally up and down, but now we're doing this repeated motion to gain a certain level of expertise, let's say, with one specific type of motion in order to be competitive in a certain type of race. One of my favorite experiments is looking at um, putting a running wheel in a cage with a rat, which scientists originally did because they thought, well, the running wheel is a healthy outlet for rats. And um, they, they noted that if you put a running wheel in a cage with a rat where there was a lever for cocaine, the rat would um, press the lever less often for cocaine because they had a distraction. They could run on the wheel. And so there's this idea, oh, it's so great exercise. Uh, that will help people not get addicted to cocaine. And in fact, there are there is evidence that exercise reduces the risk of addiction to, to things like drugs. The problem was that they noticed some of the rats um, actually got addicted to the running wheel. They would run on the running wheel so much that if you put in ever smaller running wheels, they would just scrunch themselves up until their little tails actually got permanently curved in the shape of the running wheel. Um, and they would run themselves to death. Something about that wheel allowing the rat to move in three-dimensional space, which would not have been possible without the technology of the wheel, uh, became a drug for some rodents. And then my favorite sort of evolution of this series of experiments was a group of scientists in the Netherlands put a running wheel in nature to see that surely in nature, uh, you know, on God's great green earth, no one, no animal is going to go into the running wheel. Well, it turns out all kinds of animals went into the running wheel because moving in that way against gravity uh, was is just reinforcing. It's novel. It does stimulates the brain, probably comes from kind of an adrenaline rush, um, like what people get from jumping out of airplanes or cliff jumping or skydiving or whatever it is. Absolutely fascinating. And I think there's so much more research to be done in this area because I feel, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that it is slightly under-researched and, well, it hasn't been publicized if there is re research that's extensive and that's been going on massively because I guess it's quite a niche problem as well. So it's maybe not something that's as widely publicized. Well, I think also, as you pointed out earlier, exercise, being fit, being thin, these are all things that are socially celebrated, as is you know, achievement, um, making money, all kinds of professional success. And when that happens, those are addictions that we are reluctant to call out or identify because we celebrate them as a culture, um, right? So workaholism, exercise addiction, eating disorders that lead to extreme thinness. These are things we're, we're not likely to immediately recognize as compulsive behaviors. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of And. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the AND Partnership's belief in the power of AND, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND Partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. 
That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. What are the most addictive substances? Because you you take your readers and your book through the varying grades of what gives a sort of, as it were, a, the biggest dopamine hit. Would you mind just telling us about that? I don't think it's really possible to say that one substance or behavior is definitively more addictive than another it, because of this concept of drug of choice and this idea that what's reinforcing for one person because of their unique brain wiring may not be reinforcing for another. Having said that, in general, uh, intoxicants um, are intoxicating for most people. And we know from studies in rats by placing a probe in a rat's brain and measuring dopamine firing above baseline tonic levels, because we're always releasing dopamine at a baseline level. Um, Their experiments show that, for example, chocolate increases dopamine firing about 50% above baseline um, I think nicotine is about 100%, cocaine's around 200%, amphetamine around 1,000%. Now, some of that is artifactual because of the mechanism of action. So, for example, food works on a lot of different uh, systems in the brain, including our endogenous opioid system, the opioids that we make, whereas amphetamine works directly on the dopamine system. It releases dopamine directly. So you're going to get much higher readings of dopamine release for amphetamine, which doesn't necessarily mean that amphetamine is more addictive than, let's say, chocolate. Because when it comes down, especially to the complex human brain, uh, you can have a person for whom food is ultimately their drug of choice, and they will struggle with that with that drug uh, much more than they would struggle with something like amphetamine, and of course, vice versa. And then your research that highlighted that we get more of a dopamine release in anticipation of getting a reward rather than from the reward itself. Would you mind explaining why that's the case? Sure. Well, it's not so much that we get more dopamine from anticipation, but we do get a dopamine hit from anticipation. We still get more from the reward itself. But what what's key to understand is that, for example, a rat who's been trained to know that when they see a light, If they then go over and press a lever, they'll get cocaine. If you track dopamine levels in that rat, what you find, of course, is that when they get cocaine, they get a huge spike in dopamine firing in the reward pathway. But what's interesting is that they also get a little spike of dopamine when they see the light. So just knowing that the reward is coming or being reminded of the reward makes us a little bit high followed thereafter by a little mini dopamine deficit state. So we we get a little bit high when we see the light, and then we also enter a state of craving. And that craving is then what sets us up for the inevitability of doing the work to go get the reward itself. And when we think about the world that we live in now, where we're constantly being primed to consume, right? From YouTube uh, videos to ads to push notifications to stuff that comes in our inbox unsolicited. Um, All of this stuff is priming us potentially if it's reminding us of our drug of choice, making it then very difficult for us to resist the urge. And that's happening on a neurobiological level. It's not like a, you know, I have no willpower thing. It's like, it's actually causing a little dopamine spike. Uh, For example, I I see a lot of uh, patients with pornography and masturbation, sex addiction more broadly. And I mean, if you think about, wow, the culture that we live in and the constant sexual images that we're being exposed to everywhere we turn, 
very, very hard to kind of walk through that world with a serious sex addiction and not constantly having to go through that cycle of little high and then an urge and then having to resist that. It's exhausting. And to your patients, what would you advise them to do if they are struggling with an addiction? What's your protocol for helping them abstain? Well, you know, on the face of it, it sounds super simple, but enacting it in our lives is really hard. But really, you know, recovery from any addiction or any compulsive behavior begins with abstinence from our drug of choice long enough to allow those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance so that homeostasis or a level balance can be restored. So what I invite my patients to do is to abstain from their drug for four weeks or about 30 days. Why 30 days? It's an amount of time that people can kind of wrap their heads around. It also turns out to be on average the amount of time it takes to reset those reward pathways and recapture dopamine homeostasis, which then allows the individual to, number one, look back with more objectivity at their prior consumption and evaluate the impact that it was having on their lives. Very hard to do when we're chasing dopamine. And number two, because those reward thresholds have now been reset with abstinence, uh, we're better able to take joy in more modest rewards, things that we used to enjoy, but lost the ability or capacity to take pleasure from once we began chasing this particular drug of choice and got caught up in our dopamine cycle. So so that's the the sort of initial invitation. Of course, I don't recommend that for people who have repeatedly tried to stop on their own and not been able to. I don't recommend that for for people who are at risk of a life-threatening withdrawal from something like alcohol or benzodiazepines like Xanax. But in general, even people using those substances can stop without undue danger to themselves. And that time-limited bracket allows them to kind of be able to focus on completing 30 days. And I always let people know that the first 10 to 14 days are going to be really painful. They're going to immediately go into withdrawal. Again, the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, craving. But if they can just get through those first 10 to 14 days, it's almost like they come out of the black hole And the cravings start to dissipate, mood improves, sleep gets better, they're less and less irritable. And about 80% of our patients who are able to complete that four-week dopamine fast are feeling much, much better without our having done anything else. And the great thing about that is that I no longer have to be the persuader of getting them to change their lives. They've now seen for themselves that they feel better and they're motivated to make those changes going forward. Most people want to go back to using their drug of choice, but they want to use in moderation. Uh, Some are able to, many are not, but we go around the cycle multiple times until they come to the conclusion themselves, whether or not moderation is possible or whether or not, in fact, abstinence is the best path for them. When it comes to things like digital drugs or food, things that we can't live without really, then it becomes a matter of really narrowing in on what is the drug within this larger category. So for food, people with food addiction, it's often sugar and processed food, which is what they have to eliminate rather than eliminating food altogether. With digital drugs, something we're all struggling with, it might be not going on a certain website or a certain app, a certain video game site. It might be not using pornography, but otherwise, you know, using devices. 
And I mean, in today's society, as we said, we live in such a, a dopamine-rich ecosystem where we're just getting hits left, right and center all day, especially with the invention of the smartphone and, and people just getting liked, and which has shown to be, I think, giving quite a big dopamine hit on a second-by-second second basis for some people. So what do you think we can do to help manage our lives better? I think first and foremost, we need to recognize that although there are many wonderful things about this technology, that in fact, digital media is a drug. It powerfully triggers our brain's reward pathway. It releases dopamine and that we have to treat it as such, right? We, we wouldn't give a kid a, a bottle of beer or, uh, you know, we wouldn't have them eat ice cream for breakfast, right? There are all kinds of normative behaviors that we've come to agree upon regarding consumption of various substances. And we, we wouldn't, wouldn't give a 10-year-old kid a, a Playboy magazine. We wouldn't let a 10-year-old kid wander around in a casino and play blackjack, right? So there's there's this kind of sense of, well, that, that's not something that a kid should be doing. And I don't think we've yet arrived at the recognition that there are a lot of uh, things about screens and the internet that kids should really not be exposed to. And even the screens themselves are reinforcing. They're like, uh, you know, they call to us the way some kind of, you know, ancient primitive fire calls to us. They're very stimulating, very reinforcing to the point where I believe that, you know, kids 10 and under probably shouldn't have their own devices. They shouldn't have unfettered access to the internet. And any kind of screen time that they have should be very closely and carefully monitored. And it should be limited because quantity and frequency really matters. And the more we expose our brains to these digital drugs, the more we change our brains and the more we potentially develop compulsive behaviors around them. As kids enter adolescence, I think it becomes then more about a conversation about healthy etiquette. So changing the environment, in other words, like we can't expect our behaviors to change as long as the environment is still calling to us. We really have to insulate ourselves from the constant lure. That means, you know, taking action within our own home to create tech-free spaces, maybe having times of the day when the Wi-Fi actually gets turned off, making sure that we limit devices to certain times and certain spaces. And this is not just a problem of, you know, the individual or the individual family. Parents cannot be expected to manage this enormous problem on their own. We need schools, we need governments, we need the corporations who make and profit from these digital devices to also step up and help us figure out how as a society we're going to protect ourselves uh, from the harms. Because just like the majority of people who drink alcohol will not become addicted to alcohol, the majority of people who use digital drugs will not become pathologically addicted to digital drugs. But about my prediction is about 10 to 15% of us will. And you can see that, you know, even in my own cohort of our kids, we have one child among others who really struggles to limit his consumption of video games and he becomes wildly obsessive. And the video games are, you know, engineered to make him so with the streaks and the gamblification within the video game, you know, the treasure chest that he has going to get, but only if he logs on every single day. And just we just really need to own the fact that for some of our children, uh, this is going to turn out to be a terribly dangerous and pernicious uh, kind of activity. 
And, you know, we, we have to protect our most vulnerable, so we can't ignore that. Yeah, you're so right. And I think for parents to hear that, it's so important as well, because so often you just see it's almost like a cop-out tool now. It's like hand the child an iPad in a restaurant and they'll stop whinging and they'll stop crying. And it is the easy option for a parent to do. It's far less hassle than reading a book with them or playing a game with them. And in fact, we are creating, unfortunately, a generation of children who, as you say, are going to have a real propensity to be addicted to these digital devices. And it's really destructive. And I don't think we've yet seen the long-term implications of that. Yeah, I mean, I think what we are seeing is a lot of correlative studies showing that the more time kids spend on their devices, the more likely they are to have depression, anxiety, suicidal thinking, self-harm, eating disorders. The big question, you know, that still remains is sort of the chicken and the egg. Are these kids more depressed, anxious, and otherwise disturbed because they're spending a lot of time online? Or are they already depressed, anxious, and disturbed, and so they're going online as a result of that. And I think more and more evidence now is emerging. And certainly my clinical experience would say that in fact, it's the time spent online that is causing many of these symptoms so that we actually have a causal direction uh, that it is this medium, the medium itself, and the things that are available through the medium that are causing us to be psychologically unwell. And we know that in part because when you do the dopamine fast and you take a break from it, kids emerge much better. I also want to say, though, that I have a lot of empathy for parents who are really trying to get their kids to stop and struggle and are looking around at other families who don't seem to have that problem. And it could be that the other families are like have figured out a better intervention. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that that some kids are so vulnerable to this problem that even the best parenting and lots of interventions make it almost impossible uh, in our current climate uh, for these kids to stop using. And when I say our current climate, what I mean is that you can do everything right at home. But if when your kid goes to school, uh, you know, the lecture is a YouTube video and the socialization in between classes is a bunch of kids on their phones um, playing a video game and, you know, registering for your exam requires two-step security that gets you online, which then prompts you to see an ad, which then has you watching another YouTube video. I mean, we, we've got to do a better job protecting kids in the school system. We're beginning to see some of that happening here in the United States, where some schools, mostly private schools, uh, are taking the phones away and finding that the mental health of their student body vastly improves. So I just, I hope that that catches on more broadly, including in the public school system. Really hope it does too. And to conclude, I just really love this anecdote. And you said, my patient Maria said to me, recovery is like that scene in Harry Potter when Dumbledore walks down a darkened alley, lighting lampposts along the way. Only when he gets to the end of the alley and stops to look back, does he see the whole alley illuminated, the light of his progress. Here we are at the end but it could be just the beginning of a new way of approaching the hypermedicated, overstimulated, pleasure-saturated world of today. Yeah, so recovery is a long and patient process. And so in many ways, the exact opposite of the world we live in today, the world of instant gratification. Recovery requires us really to have faith that by putting in the hard work, doing the next right thing day after day, without necessarily seeing the rewards, that the rewards will come. 
and that down the road we'll be able to look back at a life well lived because of the accumulation of many days well lived. Yeah, as a again another app saying it's baby steps. That's right. So Anna, you've been an absolute joy to interview and I hope you feel that you um gave your topic justice and we've um explored it in as much detail I think as as we could on a basic level for those of us who aren't neuroscientists. It was my pleasure and uh, you know you have lived experience which is super valuable and um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.